just looking at you or taking you in just now I suddenly got surprisingly filled with happiness and uh, it's a kind of gratitude and thank you for your practice and the richness that's here today that I can feel sometimes and that was in the group and that I hear from the one-to-ones and the Q&A and the seeing you going about your re-enchanting business. So tonight I'd like to reflect a little bit on re-enchanting dukkha. Um, re- restoring dukkha to the sacred. Uh, at a number of levels. So there's a lovely phrase I think came from last night's talk about entering the garden of multiple meanings. So enter the garden of multiple ways of attending to dukkha, conceiving dukkha, um, restoring perhaps or finding a place for the dukkha where there's potentially more soul-making, more richness, more meaning, more precision at the level of where the personal, because it can feel so intensely personal at times, where the personal is retained within our understanding that this is not just personal. This belongs to the sacred cosmos. There may be resonances at the level of our uh, collective level, our tribal level, meaning our peoples, the peoples that we come from. Personal, universal cosmos and probably lots that I've left out in there. I think dukkha is restored to the sacred in our practice anyhow. Um, This isn't all new. There's an incredible, probably for all of you, certainly for me, of uh, attending to different levels of dukkha and not just in my practice at different stages along the way, not just bumping into it like it shouldn't be there. It's the normal normal kind of knee-jerk gut reflex that there's something wrong if there's suffering, or um, I don't even know there's suffering, I just project that it's your fault, or I project that it's my fault. And there's, probably for all of us in this room, those places where we've gone beyond the appearance of dukkha to different degrees, and that's enchanting. It's like, oh, wow, I didn't stop with a surface appearance, and look what opened up via practices of three characteristics, looking deeply into emptiness. What can open up for us when we don't stop with appearances? And a lot of that in our practice is seeing the universal nature. Sometimes some of us can have an idea, check, check out if you have this idea at all, that the personal nature of the dukkha is something I'll see through, get over, and then from there on out, hey, hey, I'm back with the sacred. 
I don't know if anyone has that idea. And something, somebody put their hand up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and it's understandable we would get that view. Or, of course, we, we all know the kind of more common view is that we reify the personal, that it's all about me. And um, that's what it feels like sometimes, doesn't it? When the, all the levels collapse, the garden of multiple meaning has turned in, doesn't feel like a garden at all anymore and it's kind of contracted into a very either tight or dry or desert-like landscape. So I want to really include the personal, the human. Um, and actually what I thought tonight was that we could start sing with a song together, uh, a very human song. And it was, um, I thought of it again tonight, uh, let me tell you a story first, how the human, personal, which probably we all know, but forget, is uh, never parted from the divine, the sacred. Just feels like it, sometimes. And this started with um, uh, last August, my dear mum died on August the 16th last year and uh, she was 92 and it was uh, many things to lose her And one of the uh, things that my one of my nieces said afterwards, and I didn't have this, you know, we all have different relationships with the same people. One of my nieces, who's almost my age, she said to me, as she was crying, she said, she called her Nanny, she said, but Nanny's the only one who, when I go to her with my troubles, she goes, Nanny's the only one that says to me, Marcia, she's called Marcia. Marcia, let's um, let's be quiet a moment and put ourselves in the Lord's hands. She said, nobody says that anymore. <laughs> she said, but and Nanny was the only one who said that, and that meant such a lot to her. Not because her, I think, her conception of Lord is any. You know, she's aware of its limitations and its history and all what's done in that name and all of that. But there's something about that 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 my mom had very strongly that had meaning for my niece because nobody else in her life does that with her. It had a felt meaning that maybe needs some narrative filling out for us in this age. But, uh, yeah, it was very beautiful, actually. And then her boyfriend said to me, um, oh, have you heard that song by Bill Withers? And, uh, and I said, no, and I just vaguely remembered Bill Withers was the guy who sung Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Right? That wasn't about my mum, that's not that. Uh, you remember that one, Ain't No Sunshine? He said, no, not that one. He said, there's a song called Grandma's Hands. Um, and he played it for me, and I know Nick knows it because she told me. 
um, he played it for me, and uh, the, in the clip, Bill, Bill Withers speaks about his grandma and her hands. And she's dead by this stage that he's singing the song. He says, I think he says it's one of his most favorite, beloved songs that he wrote. It has so much soul in it, so much meaning. And for me, his transmission of her hands became an image for me. I never had a, I never knew a grandma. Um, but the way he describes her hands, very human, very grandma. And it took, it took me into my heart in a way that um, I could feel multiple resonances of his love for her and her love for him. I got that sense of that grandma archetype where um, she's old enough, she's seen enough. She's been through the worldly winds. Remember those in Dharma? <laughs> Praise and blame, success and failure. She's been through the worldly winds enough times and been spun, and she's come out the other end wiser, kinder and very much holding the perspective of the beyond. And um, so th let's sing it. You can just sing if you don't know, you won't know the words. Nick might know the words. <laughs> she does, correct? You know, no, I'll I don't mind leading it. <laughs> but the mantra part is grandma's hands, grandma's hands. And you can join that if you like. If you want to join, and we can we can kind of get into Bill Withers' channel with his groove. <clears throat> and I'll sing the little bits where he's actually describing the different qualities of what came to him through our hands. Different aspects, I would say, of the human and divine, not just the cuddly grandma, that and many other levels of grandma. <clears throat> I don't know what kind of... Anyway, let's try it. Grandma's hands. Grandma's hands. You don't have to join in. Grandma's hands. I won't feel bad if you don't. <laughs> Grandma's hands. And then it goes. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played the tambourine so well. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She said, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in that grass. Grandma's hands. Grandma's hands. Grandma's hands soothe the local unwed mother. Grandma's hands used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hands used to lift her face and tell her, baby grandma understands that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands. Grandma's hands, grandma's hands, grandma's hands. 
used to hand me piece of candy. Grandma's hands picked me up each time I fell. Grandma's hands, boy, they really came in handy, she said. Maddie, don't you whip that boy. What you want to spank him for? Whoops, where is it? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have grandma anymore. Grandma's hands, grandma's hands, grandma's hands. And then he says, as it fades, grandma's hands. If I get to heaven, I'm going to look for grandma's hands. Grandma's hands. Just we can just enjoy it for a bit. Grandma's hands. You've been dying to sing Grandma's hands. Please. Grandma's hands. Hmm. Yeah, let's go for it a little bit. Grand and you can fill any if it's not grandma's hands that do it for you today. Fill in your own image on it. Grandma's hands. Grandma's hands, take your time to feel it. Grandma's hands, grandma's hands, grandma's hands, grandma's hands, grandma's hands. So I think I'm going to give you the um, headers of what I'd like to speak about, and I don't know that, don't think there will be time for all of it, but just to put it in the field together. I'd like to uh, speak about re-enchanting the dark. If I can, I'd like to speak about bl blame. <clears throat> I'd like to speak about expansion and contraction. Maybe it's possible. Oh, and I'd like us to try on some ideas at the end, like we did this morning with the conceptions of seeing each other, um, but to do with ideas and ways of looking at dukkha. Actually, I think I'm going to start while we're on the grandma theme. I'll just start with one from my mom, one of her conceptions of dukkha. Not that she could practice it perfectly in every moment by any means. I'm not trying to uh, give her a, what do you call it, a um, halo. Thank you. 
What's that other word when you make someone a saint? Huh? Yeah, all of those. <laughs> yeah. We got lots of words. Canonization, beatification, so yeah, all of that. I'm not trying to do that. But she had this one, and she listened to this cosmology and metaphysics and meaning in this. She would come to come up at night and say prayers with me sometimes on times tables. They came together. And because they didn't teach them when I went to school in 1971, they had, we did a groovy era with no times tables. And um, <clears throat> she did times tables, uh, prayers, and other things. I might tell you if I know you a bit better. But <laughs> for one of the things, if I had a pain or something was up, or um, uh, yeah, something I was going, she'd say, uh, can you can you offer that pain up for the holy souls in purgatory? Right, I'll explain. That. <laughs> I'll explain that. There's some, you know, we can wonder about the dubious part of it, but I want to I want to actually just paint the shape and where actually a whole conception that's in there that actually did allow something to open up for me very often. So basically, I could put it in Dharma language, she's saying, that pain isn't just yours, my love. It's not you. It's not yours. Uh, and this pain has some meaning that connects you with all other souls. And not only does it connect you with all other souls, so this part that was hard to understand, can you offer it up to the souls in purgatory? <laughs> I'll tell you the story. Purgatory is this peculiar Catholic uh, doctrine where souls that are waiting to go to heaven, they're not quite there yet. They need a little bit more help. Need a taxi, right? <laughs> right? They need a taxi. So not only was my pain connected with these other souls, it was also instrumental. The way I would be with the pain was instrumental in their freedom. That's a metaphor. They're going to go to heaven or being well, whatever that meant. But their freedom was related to the way I would attend to my pain. The effect of that, when she would say it, sometimes it was really irritating and annoying and I just wanted to moan or cry. Or, um, but the effect very often when she nestled me in that bigger story, that bigger narrative that was shared and was believed and was, uh, you know, her story, her narrative of meaning, one of her narratives of meaning, that um, I was like, oh, wow, my stomach ache. Okay. Okay, how do you do that? Can I offer it? Can I make it therefore sacred? Can I restore it to the sacred and offer it back in some kind of faith that this was not only not me or mine, but the way I attended would be of benefit, actually. Be of benefit. So without having to pick apart the um, problematic nature of, you know, which I can very easily, because it was always offering up, which is part of the problematic legacy that we have inherited, right? We can also offer down. Reencharting the dark is to, um, maybe I could say, mature or grow beyond the 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 sky god 
but without throwing out the sacred, including the sky and the unhindered seeing that comes from the sky, the big view, the incredible, incredible vista of what we can see, not just literally see, but see, see into, look deeply into. And restoring to the sacred, the below, that which appears at first dark or not so amenable to uh, knowing in the same way, not so amenable immediately to getting so fast, seeing from the great vista. Maybe then I <clears throat> start with this... Uh, Somebody who's on the retreat actually said to me last week that part of why they wanted to come to this retreat was the sense that they could restore. There was an intuition as they were working with their practice. There was an intuition that that person could restore to the sacred, to enchantment, what she said, areas of disturbance and madness in her family um, uh, field, that's it. Thank you. In her family field, in, including in herself, that would get pushed away. Knee-jerk reaction, where we're pushing away aspects of ourselves. Should I have a sense and an intuition that this can be restored? That there's a way of seeing this, not not reifying or glorifying the madness, not at all. There's no pretense that it's anything other than incredibly painful. But some way of seeing was ready to be reincorporated in the sacred matrix. So re-enchanting the dukkha, restoring our dukkha to the sacred, what might that look like if that was happening in any one moment for a soul? And I don't know. I, I, maybe it looks really different for all of us. But one thing I sense, imagine, is, as Rob was speaking about earlier, this posture of humility. When we take our hands off, it's not just me or mine. It's not me or mine. Doesn't just mean dropping it or only immediately going to the universal or immediately to the dissolving. But there's something in that in-between territory <coughs> where we are retained. The personhood is retained. The particularity of this suffering and how it fits in my, uh, I'm going to use the language where the vertical axis, where the timeless sacred dimension meets with the particulars of my life, that I don't stop there, but there's a posture of humility. I realize there's something bigger. I can bow right there in that moment, right there. And in the moment that I'm humbled, I am exalted. 
that I can't claim or appropriate the beauty and the gifts of divinity. And neither am I exiled only to my personal story. That if I knew, and maybe you have at times, that not only can you see beyond the appearance of the dukkha, I mean, it takes a while sometimes, doesn't it? It's hard. But some, all of you will have seen beyond the appearance at times. Not only seeing beyond the appearance, but that the appearance itself I might know in the moment that it arises, the appearance of the contraction, the, the scratchiness, the the rage, the sorrow, the, the grief, the lamentation, not getting what I want, being separated from what I love, that in that moment I might recognize that self-clench as my beloved in a face that I haven't yet recognized. I might recognize that and have faith and intuition that there is more multiple resonances and meanings here that I can't possibly know yet. This is unfathomable, but I can bow here. Where acceptance doesn't just mean acceptance is a good idea because that's how you go beyond dukkha. That's really helpful. But that acceptance comes out of that love of our beloved connection with this mysterious otherness. It reminds me of, um, I'm aware of all my Christian metaphors here, but it's not surprising really, is it? But um, uh, Mother Teresa, in a part of the nun's story, is that they become brides of Christ. Right, so he's not just uh, he's he's the lover, right? They're brides of Christ. They're not mates of Christ, you know. They're, <laughs> they're brides of Christ. And I, I met her, and I did um, spend some time in her cl- clinic, one of her clinics for the dying in Cal- in Calcutta, and um, it was pretty grim in there, you know, just the the not because of the dying necessarily, although that has its own incredible poignancy, just the, the conditions and the numbers of people and how close all the little tiny beds were to each other and the the conditions that they could offer, which had a lot of love and kindness in it, but not lots of equipment and lots of um, supplies. <clears throat> but you, some of you may know she, she would say, and I think what gave her such incredible power in what she offered was that when I look into the eyes of my dying patients, I, I see my beloved Christ in distress. That's what I see. There's her imaginal um, heart, actually. So what would that be if we knew? And it doesn't have to be that story, of course, because this, as we're seeing, has this individual quality here. This waking up on this imaginal level. What might that look like? To meet our own dukkha, 
Let's start there. And let's keep it really mundane here as well. Something that's happened for you today. Um, Some... mm, Anybody have any of those today? (laughs) I don't get it or... or a collapse or a contraction or whatever it was that in that moment we may bow there even if I don't get it yet I can bow here I didn't bring the book I had this little book of poems from Hafiz and the the line, the beginning line of one of them I always liked it but I think I like it better now and it, it says maybe you can help me out something like the the place where you are right now the beloved has marked this on a map for you knowing you were coming it's a story but see if it has any resonance because what we're interested in is what can we try on what resonates with us that starts to open up this garden so that in the territory between not me and mine and me and mine there's a a world of richness a world of meaning so I want to um, Tell a story of one person from one person, and it's about opening to and in, including and working with. So it's a practical example of working with dukkha. So um, there was there was an issue happening, as there is for us human beings. There was an issue happening, and the person was sincerely in, in inquiring into what was arising for her. And she said, oh, here's the issue, here's the story part of the issue, and that's included, and we held that and, and got it and heard it. And what's happening in the body? She said, okay, there's a contraction in the chest, but there's a kind of an expansion and a lot of life energy in the belly. Okay. And then she said, oh, I can see my tendency. My tendency is to go to the problem. My tendency is to go to the contraction. Like she could feel her attention go straight to the chest. And so with the seeing that, she paused and included the belly, right? Opened the awareness, widened it out to the bigger body. So open belly, contracted chest, staying with that whole mix. And as she did, I'm probably forgetting some of the details, but as she did, um, an image arose. And this image, she said at first, it was vague. It was vague on the visual, but it had a very clear character. And it had a sort of, the sense of like a, the nearest thing she could say was like a priestess kind of quality, someone who knows about ritual and beyondness and invocation. And as she saw that and let the image uh, get clearer, she's said um she say ah she she got on the she got the significance on the personal autobiographical level 
She knew her story, she knew her psychodynamics, she knew her pieces of history that were relevant, that were coming up with this contraction. It helped her to see those. And she knew that territory well. She'd done a lot of work at that level. She goes, yeah, okay, that's here. That needs care and attention and is included. And what, what else? What else can be seen here? And then she said, oh, I can see this image. She has a sword. I know what it's about. She said, and, I, and we said, wait. We both agreed, just wait a sec. Don't be too quick to interpret the meaning. Come to the felt resonance. Keep sensing, letting it impact you. Sense it. And as she did, we asked the question, is the image divine? And very quickly, the instinct, yes. But not divine in the way I normally think of divine. She said, it's loving, this image is loving, but not in the normal way I think of loving. It is loving, but its primary face is kind of uncompromising and powerful. And as she let that impact her and seeing the divinity in that, then the felt meaning came, which was similar to the interpreted meaning, but it had a resonance where she wasn't just finished with it. She stayed, there's a kind of compelling quality to stay with this divinity for her, like my sense of that, like a kind of kneeling at that altar. Like I want to hang out with this image because it speaks to me of so much more than I can see already. I'm attracted, we're often attracted to that in each other, in an image that has that divine quality. It speaks to me of more, I'm not done with it. And I want to kneel here. Staying with it a little bit longer, she realized that there was a kind of a calling. She felt called upon, not knowing how this would manifest, but with these qualities of power, to take those on as aspects of the divine in her life. I'll tell you a different story about contraction and expansion from a, some of the newer science. I really like, really like it. It's a story, but it's a different story than the normally inherited, uh, longer established s story. So I'll read a little bit. And as I read it, I'd just like you to take it on not just as a uh, it, it's talking about the cosmos, right? But take it on as you, as a fun, as cosmos, as a, either the microcosm, you may get that, or the complete cosmos right here in your location. Hear it at both those levels, if you, if you will. 
So this story, so scientists long assumed that visible forms of matter and energy make up the universe. Recently, they were stunned to discover that an overwhelming preponderance of universe is invisible, that they don't know what 96% of the universe really is. I mean, we can, you know, let's, have, let's take it as a, as a nighttime story. Um, so, the, yes, these two kinds of, they naming, two kinds of invisible energies, which some of you probably know about, dark matter, which is a contractive force, and dark energy, which is an expansive force. Ever noticed expansion and contraction? Ever remember the third foundation of mindfulness? Know the expanded mind as the expanded mind and know the contracted mind as the contracted mind. Full stop. And we can think, no, 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 but that doesn't mean that bit where I get really tight. Why not? You think you're made of something else? I remember once going to one of my teachers in the early days of my practice and, and I was sitting late at night and had a, a kind of what I thought was a cool experience and I noticed my whole body and energy body expand and then it kind of contracted. I was really excited. It was very cool. And I went to him and I said, like, this is exciting, isn't it? I, last night I expanded and then I contracted and he went, yep, just like universes. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. So he was offering me the don't take it personally story, don't make something special out of your experience story, which was useful. But maybe there's more levels to it than that as well. That in not taking it personally, I don't only have to take it impersonally. It's not my only other option but not taking it personally or impersonally, what is actually happening when you contract? The bit we might hear is that, and they shouldn't, and he didn't, why didn't she, and they Come to the contraction. What would it be to conceive? Oh, yeah. Like the cosmos. And what they say in about um, contractive dark matter, which I can't remember, I think that's like 23% wherever they get this idea from. And dark, by the way, means not able to be measured. That's what their definition of dark is. It's like, oh, goody, so we have all these other ways of knowing that are coming back to us and that we're restoring and developing. Wow, we can, we can really adventure we can really adventure but i think the contractive this contraction as a an activity is to apparently give something enough structure give universes systems matter enough structure that it doesn't just spin out of itself and that the dark energy see if i can find this part Yeah, dark energy, 
God knows how that they figure that out, causes the universe, listen to this, causes the, this is a great bedtime story, causes the universe to inflate or expand from within at an increasing rate. Isn't that sometimes why we want to contract? It's like, whoa, if I didn't contract, I might spin out. Right? So sometimes we close down around all of that energy, all of that expansion, all of that, whatever it is that we think might not be quite right or I'm not knowing how to handle. And we take it very personally and it can be very painful. What would that be to consider? Yeah, like, like the cosmos. Expanding, contracting, as one way of looking. Maybe re-enchanting the dark has to wait till we're older. Maybe another night. I don't want to speak really, really, really long. Let's let's. Um, Play a little bit and trying on some, trying on some uh, stories for dukkha. So please assume a story trying on posture that may be exactly as you are. that expansion and contraction reminded me of this Rumi poem he said your hand opens and closes and opens and closes if it were always a fist or always stretched open you would be paralyzed if it were always a fist or always stretched open you would be paralyzed your deepest beloved presence is in every small contracting and expansion the two as beautifully balanced and coordinated as wings of a bird. <coughs> so as I offer a few of these, <clears throat> let them go from the idea into if there's a felt resonance, a felt meaning in the chitta at all. It usually takes a little time to see if this one is one that has any felt meaning for me. So I'm going to start with one from Thomas Merton. Um, a monastic, silent monastic. <laughs> I'm just, just realizing he's another Catholic, but it's like, <laughs> God forgive me. It's like, <laughs> it's another one. Um, beautiful, beautiful, inspiring man who spent, I don't know, 35 years in silence and then really, something like that, really a long time uh, in a silent, very strict order 
and then felt called out into social action and speaking out in a certain way and really straddled those worlds. Um, was one sentence that really struck me as an image from something I read of his where in his prayer, in his, in his humbly handling his dukkha, I guess, and also his praise, his grief and his praise, he said, none of me belongs to anyone but you. None of me belongs to anyone but God. that posture of praise, of offering, of giving ourself. I've used that also with really, really including the up and the down, not just the upward dwelling aspect of the sacredness, but really calling on the Mother Earth of none of me belongs to anyone but you. None of me belongs to anyone but you. Here's a third one. Perhaps this pain in my soul right now is the disguised face of my beloved. This fourth one that one of my Zen teachers used to have us try on regularly. A little bit like Rob was talking about earlier with the person irritating you as an angel. He would say, but you're surrounded by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Can't you see it? He said, they're exactly the thing you need next for waking up. Exactly the way that person is right now, the exact face and the way that it impacts you. Just what I need for awakening. This one is a, a well-known quote. I can't remember who it's from. I think it's... I'll, I'll find out and tell you. Does overcome any bitterness that may have come because you were not yet up to the magnitude of the pain that, that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world who comes, sorry, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, each one of us is part of her heart and therefore 
endowed with a certain measure of cosmic pain. You are sharing in the totality of that pain. You are called upon to meet it. What if that that you're contracting around and that arising together of the attention and the thing that we think is the problem, that we think in, is in the way, perhaps it's not in the way. Perhaps it's waiting for us to see it in a new way. It reminds me of one person today in the small group working with a uh, contraction around the head. And as they worked with it and as the aversion softened and opened to it with new eyes, this contraction softened and their energy dropped down into their chest from this fixation around the head. And the person's chest, he said, started to be like waves. It was like these waves of energy coming out of the chest. He said, oh, it's like music. And he saw that in the contraction and the sort of papancha and the repetition in his mind that was going on in the contraction, that that was his attempt to connect the story he was telling himself, the people he was imagining, singing to, or sharing something with. He said, it was my attempt to connect, but actually I wasn't connecting, it was doing the opposite. He said, perhaps the way I connect is just to sit here as these waves of music radiating. So find, and maybe you have, but trust and use and and practice with long enough to feel the felt resonance of the idea into the way that it affects you. I think I'll end with um, just that music metaphor. Uh, So that our language of the divine and the sacred can really completely be our own. You know, it doesn't have to follow any narratives that have even been written so far or told so far. And this this was um, several months ago, I had the good fortune to um, uh, go to a four-day ceremony. I went to two days of it, um, quite local to here. I wonder if some of you here, well, Andrew was part of supporting uh, in, an, in, another, in another place. But this was a, a gathering of... Uh, women, actually, uh, that had been conceived by a a North American woman from the First Nation peoples. And she gathered together nine indigenous women 
uh, from North America, Canada, Chile, Colombia, um, Indonesia, Namibia, Australia. Uh, Sri Lanka um, and these women were our uh, teachers and uh, one of them had had a, a, a calling her calling was to she said she was she as born as a First Nation person started to as she was inquiring into her 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 the urgency of her calling to respond to the world. She started to have uh, visions of the age, the time, the era in Europe, uh, some several hundred years ago, of the witch burnings. She started to have these images where the people, uh, usually the medicine people of Europe, often women but also men, um, were burned were that that level of knowledge that level of um wisdom as you know so this is in this is here this is in what is now holland and germany and right, this this taking away of this uh level taking away brutally repressing this level these people and she said she was having these visions and she felt called to come to europe um, and gather the, uh, these women to support us if we wanted to be supported, to listen and remember our own indigene whose root had been cut um, in this collective pain, in that era of the rise of the incredible gifts and the seeing into and the brilliance of science, in the rise of that, this ways of knowing that were eradicated and wiped out. So she wanted to support us to listen to that root. It's a very deep root here. You just have to listen a little longer. So as she came and brought these women with her, incredible gift, there were uh, maybe 150 of us and a lot of men supporting the whole gathering. And uh, as the women came in, in this opening circle, this uh, all really different, all really, really different from one another. And I think that's part of the work of this re-enchanting is that we can become more and more of ourself. Really is that personal peace, tribal peace, collective peace, universal peace, cosmos are all those levels joined up. So the women walked in and did their, one of their rituals to, to begin. And this very small woman, I think she was from Chile, and she spoke in the, in the circle and was translated, and she said, and she was just like this dancing ball of, probably nothing like that, but she was <laughs> dancing delight and had her gear on and, and she said, as I walked around the circle and met you all, felt you all, she said, I could feel many troubled hearts. And she said it with great delight, right? <laughs> many troubled hearts. And she said, and some of you cried when I walked past. And she wasn't claiming anything, but she goes, that's because my cells are made of music, <laughs> right? 
And she was really this kind of kind of light waves like the person in the group today, this radi- way we radiate, we transmit, all of us transmit everything. And we know about the radiance of the divine abidings in the tradition. And maybe there's, without appropriating these divine gifts, there's a way that that's very, very particular to each one in that lovely piece that in the, the Uh, we heard in the teaching in the messianic age everyone has was it their own conception of god is that what it was perception (laughs) their own perception of god right so it's that and that in that felt percept there's the very particular way that each one of you it's not later when we're more special we're already in it that we transmit and radiate that very individual unique utterly nestled in something way beyond me and mine and yet very particular not like another without grasping without appropriating those gifts, both humbled and exalted, as we take our seat at this table. So, thank you for taking your seat at the table, even if sometimes you don't want to be at the table. Um, Have you got a better option? So let's sit together for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.